Being quarantined in our homes, away from many, if not all, of our loved ones, is not a thing to celebrate. But it does afford us, despite real fears and discomfort, a great deal of time for meditation and reflection. Hopefully, God and Other Delicacies can be one of the ways in which you find a sliver of optimism in your day and the welcome warmth of connecting deeply with someone you've just met for the first time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Agusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane, wherever you are in this interconnected world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Louise Spinner to the show. Louise is a former senior talent agent in the motion. Don't you talk yet, Louise. Louise, (laughs) Louise is a former senior talent agent in the motion picture department at United Talent Agency. Throughout a career in representation spanning three decades, she has fostered the growth of many artists, including breakout stars such as Michael Pena, Amanda Seyfried, and Channing Tatum. Philanthropically, she has served on the board of Women in Film and was a founding member of Step Up Women's Network. I met Louise right as I was realizing my career had started at the Los Angeles premiere for the movie Election, where I was celebrating my first screen role, and she was part of a team representing Reese Witherspoon. Louise, in turn, became my first manager, later my agent, and now I'm her first interview as we find her embarking on a new professional chapter in her career and thus her new life journey. I am thrilled to have her on the phone right now to talk about all of this and more. Welcome to the show, Louise. All right, you can talk now, Louise. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. for a living, I have to say. Well, listen, I mean, I'll take anything right now, you know? I mean... Uh, <laughs> If anybody needs me to write pitches online for you from my home in COVID-19, I'll do it. Well, you know, that's a good industry that could be starting out of the ashes of what will be left of the entertainment industry. My goodness. What will come, Louise? What will come? And will you care now that you're not in it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying. I think that's the goal for all of us, to care, to be inspired to care. Well, you're going to hop right in, I can tell, because this is where you're at right now. You are embarking on a massive career shift. I can't get there just yet, but I just want to tell you real quickly, one of the things that's extraordinary to me about getting to have this conversation with you as you are no longer in representation, you are the first mm-hmm. representative I ever had. So through that, you were my you were the introduction to the business aspect of the entertainment world. I was just a Sometimes I'm still just a naive Omaha boy, but I was such a naive Omaha boy at that time. It's amazing to remember that that moment for me, 1999. So this is uh, 21 years ago. And to me, I guess what I'm expressing is I'm excited to have this conversation for you because it feels so, it feels like I'm talking to someone I've known for so long, but with, with no barriers that I would have normally maybe felt between the relationship of actor to representation. And what's it like for you to start talking like that well, with people. It's freeing. It's very freeing. Although I I think I've always kind of branded myself as someone who was authentic and straightforward. Certainly we're all as human beings ultimately motivated to the agendas of self-interest, even if that which we're trying to gain is that we get off on helping other people. It's still always motivated by what makes us feel useful and important and relevant and purposeful and all of those things. And And, and it's actually kind of full circle because you are the Oof, you thought introducing me was hard to pronounce. The anthropomorphization. Ooh, uh, very good. Very good. Right? The quality and essence made in human form. Indeed, yeah. Kind of why I started in this business. The, the eye that I developed as a as a manager, kind of out of the gate of my training, at two of the big three-letter agencies, 
this ability to identify someone who was truly committed to what they were going to do and who had so much potential that I knew with the right development, incubation, care, strategy, could make a living doing something in the arts that they love. And I certainly aware that I don't possess even half of the skills that the people I represent do, but it could be equal in, the, in, in being useful by helping them find a platform to do that work. So yeah, for a while it was like <laughs> somewhere between like used car salesman and pimp on this social integrity sincerity scale. <laughs> is that point, you know, is that how many is that how most agents feel well, about themselves? Agents, the cliche of the, and this was really like entourage is funny because it's kind of true. But I think you're in a it's a, ultimately a business where the item you're selling is sentient and vulnerable and needs a different kind of handling than if it were you know a piece of fruit. Or something, although sometimes that that line gets blurry. No doubt. What am I going to be like the last, the last, the first, last, and only agent who means it, who really, really means it? Um, I think there's a lot of people who are in the business for all the right reasons and who want to be able to use whatever gifts they have to share great performances that move, touch, inspire, and unite people. But ultimately, it's a business. My particular journey started out where I was like, look at with the right access and rhetoric and passion, someone who is deserving, like this young actor in a five-line role in a great movie, that I saw it. I saw it. I recognized it. And you were able to have this trajectory. I mean, I think within maybe four or five years of, of us meeting, you were Got a series. I'm going to cut you off from uh, regaling me too much. I get I'm, I'm embarrassed. I don't want this show to be about me. I, you've done a, a fine job already. You've given me enough. I want to tell you some of my memories of your generosity. You were very kind to me and my parents that were there. I was so surprised by what had happened at this premiere. You know, I was invited by Alexander Payne to come out. I was a freshman in college at the time. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't even know I was going to walk the red carpet that night. I was went with my parents over to the right where the guests were going, and someone, you know, one of the representatives of MTV, I guess, or Paramount, yeah, yeah, Paramount was who did it, yeah, grabbed me and walked me down the red carpet. Afterwards, you were one of a number of people that gave me their card, but I asked the producers at the time, you know, which one of these are the most, like, legit, and it was a resoundingly you was the answer, and uh, you met with us. I went back to college. I came back out after that summer. You let me stay in your bungalow oh, in right. Santa Monica. That's, uh, I became addicted to cha-cha chicken at the time. I, uh, <laughs> I, but I just, I'm just looking back at those early years. It's, I was, as I was anticipating well, I having this conversation. Donald's assistant did your headshot. Yes. In the backyard. Oh my gosh. Did wow. Did your first headshot. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. And then you got the role that summer in the Charles Bush feature. That's right. The Psycho Beach, Psycho Party. Beach Party. And somebody recently referenced that with me. And I was like, how do you, you even know that exists? You handed someone a soft serve ice cream. That's right. <laughs> well, actually, the thing that I want to say about that is, is that two things. One was that it shot in San Dimas. And that's when I realized that Bill and Ted were actually from a real place. And then the other thing was that they kept, it was a night shoot and they kept not getting to my scene. So I actually mm. got paid for three days instead of just one. <laughs> um, oh, wow. All right, Louise. So I can do this forever, but we're going to, there's a lot more stuff I want to get to. So the first thing is, of course, the most important thing. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, what I always have for breakfast, um, a banana. Really? You're just a, a one banana girl. 
I'm a, <laughs> I'm a cereal banana. I'm a cereal banana <laughs> You're a cereal banana. <laughs> That's really good. I like that. I Never a banana cereal. and cereal, but always a cereal <laughs> banana. Exactly. Cereal banana lover. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, Frosty Flakes uh, banana and I'm on my third cup of coffee. In case you can't tell. Very good. No, no. I, I we do matcha to start, and then I and then I pound a few cups of coffee, and then if I really need it, I'll throw a Coca Cola in the afternoon. That's how I make it through. Sorry. That's not. It's not. It's not. I didn't need the Coca Cola today because I actually got a good night's sleep, but I did need it yesterday. Louise, thank you. There's so yeah. much that I don't know about your history, and I'm going to start to find it out right now. How and when okay. were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Okay, so. I'm the youngest of six kids, grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. Didn't even know that. Well, blended family. My parents were both married before and had children from their previous marriages. My dad was a widower. My mom was a divorcee. Wow. Was your dad a very young widower? No, he was not. Oh. Let me say, well, I mean. Sorry, I'm cutting you off, but that was just kind of shocking to me. Oscar and Cynthia, Oscar and Cynthia Spinner um, met singing in the choir at Temple Shalom in West Newton when he was a widower and she was young, divorcee with three kids, school-age kids, and he had two teenage children. Wow. Um, But they knew each other socially from both being members of the choir temple. And my father used to, (laughs) my father, who was 48 when he met my mom, who was 33, used to say somewhat (laughs) adorably and naively that fell in love with the back of my mother's head. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing woman. If, if the back of her, I can only imagine well, what the front looked like. Alto. He was a baritone. And, and if you know anything about the schematics of choir seating, that would make sense. But if you don't, it sounds filthy. And I apologize. <laughs> that. Um, so they married and I was born a year later. But I think the purpose of the temple had been met. My parents had a political difference with the rabbi at the time. And, and much like many reformed Jews, you know, the three different kind of levels of Judaism yes. of being, you know, Orthodox, conservative, and reform. You know, reform is more culturally Jewish than observant it's wise. Jewish. You didn't keep kosher. Didn't keep kosher. Um, the only way I knew it was a high holy day is that we got a really good parking space at Romans. Mm-hmm. Like it was like, <laughs> but, but a lot of the tenets, the tenets of, of the culture, not to get all kind of Malcolm Gladwell on you, but you should sacrifice for your children. You should have better than you had. Education is paramount. I think lots of parents have distribution rights on guilt. I don't, you know, if there's Catholic guilt and the Jewish guilt, although one is a little bit more indirect, you know, whereas my understanding of the fear of heaven and hell is what drives most of the Catholic guilt, but the Jewish guilt is, that, you know, that it's all right, I don't, I don't just sit in the dark, I forget what you look like, but right. <laughs> like that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but it, the sense of humor also very specific. So in that way, I, I very much identify as Jewish, and I know some of the prayers, but, you know, I, I'm married when I was married, I married an Episcopalian, which to my mind is kind of like the reformed Jew of Christianity in terms of its level of devoutness. And we raised our children with understanding of the cultures of our religion, but that I really didn't have, you know, any 
understanding of temple, except that it was really long and loud, and you would go only on special occasions, and I did not get bat mitzvah. Your, your children, um, your children did not get no, bar or bat mitzvah. No, yeah, I do firmly believe that if you want to raise your children with religion, then you have to, you have to be the example. I mean, that starts in the home, that connection to spirituality and and tradition, and 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 our traditions were more around food. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like oh, you know, Passover is. Built the fish, you know, and, mm-hmm. and Rosh Hashanah is brisket. You know, it was more that. You know, when my eldest was born, or on the occasion of his first kind of cognizant spring, my mother-in-law, in a really magnanimous show of bipartisanship, gave him two books. The first is um, a child's book of Passover, and the second book was my first Easter. Mm. So, inspired by her generosity, I thought, you know what? I'm going to read my two-year-old. I'll read him. The Jesus book first. So, of course, the narrative, and I'm not, I'm misremembering most of the setup, but of course, I remember being shocked and saddened that it was a fairly graphic for a children's book, you know, of the crucifixion. Wow. Okay. So you didn't, like, you didn't even open it. it. You just were like, right? this will be no, like I a did, flowery. There were, there were pictures. <laughs> it was, you know, it wasn't like a pop out Jesus, but it was close. Yeah. And there was a crucifixion, and then the, in the cave, and then the resurrection. And I thought, well, this imagery. I mean, that's just not for children. <laughs> right. Let me go to my trusty Passover book and talk to you about some plagues. Yes, exactly. And, <laughs> and this blood on the door and the slaying of the firstborn male. And I was like, okay. And I kind of made a decision then and there that there are stories that go with the Bible and the Old Testament, which I, I love are stories. And I do believe that science and the, the Old Testament can exist side by side. But I felt really that Christmas should be about Santa and we could make Easter and Passover both about spring and renewal and hope and not make it about suffering and death and guilt and all, which is what really resonated for me as a parent at that time, whereas I hadn't really given much thought to the spiritual health of my children. I mean, God, becoming a parent grows you up super fast in that way. Undoubtedly. And, and all of the things you decried about the way your parents raised you become super important to maintain as a tradition once you have kids. You hated it when you were young, your kids will hate it too. I think that's also part of the Jewish we should the Jewish culture. We should all understand the suffering that preceded our suffering. That's right. Okay, okay. So you're the only biological child of your two parents. Mm-hmm. Yes. The youngest of your half siblings is six or six uh, or eight nine or years something. My senior. Nine, nine years. years my senior. So do you have any but kind of close connection yeah. to them? Yeah. As a, as well, a child. I, mean, I don't know a world without them in it. So I don't make the genetic distinction. Right. I came okay. into the world. They were there. They teased me like they were full blooded. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I certainly borrowed my sister's clothes. Like I wasn't supposed to, as if she were my full sister. <laughs> so <laughs> there were some, you know, logistical issues because my father's kids, by the time I was, walking were already married or in college. So I have a relationship that feels more like sisterhood with their children mm. who are my age, kind of. Interesting, um, interesting. Oh, my ancestry.com is so up. I mean, it's like 17 trees. I had the benefit of being an only child without any of the pressure. I was the glue between the, the two families, or at least that was my self-appointed identification. Years of therapy. Obviously, with that, I was like, I'm the, I'm the only thing anyone has in common, so I have to be the ambassador sure, to both sides. Right. But um, I feel like I was really blessed. Although my parents were older parents, at least especially in the 60s when I was born, 
to have a 34-year-old birth mother was a little bit old. And then my dad was 50 when I was born. Right. That's, I mean, obviously for a female today, not shocking at all. Yeah. Certainly would have been back then. And even, but even a dad today, yeah. that's 48 or so. That's even kind of still considered a little bit later. Is your father and mother still alive? Oh, God. No, well, no right? Died. Your father would no, be. My no, my father would have been 100 and. Wow. Seven. Right. Um, my goodness. Yeah, my mom, who was born in 29, would have been. No, I, I, I'm an orphan. Mm. <laughs> I'm an orphan at 56. Okay, so there's so much I want to get about when in your life did your parents pass away? Okay, so my mother, who was 14 years, my dad's junior, don't forget. So right. the conversation had always been, you know, and, and endearingly, not as a curse or anything. Oh, we'll do it when your father dies. Because, right, you know, right. 14 years of difference isn't that much when you're 34 and 48. But that that age difference becomes more, I don't want to say grotesque, but more exaggerated. Yeah, certainly more pronounced, yeah. The, the younger one is a young bon vivant anyway, attracted to the somewhat stoic and stable older qualities of her husband but they you know when she's a very young 40 and he's 55 and conversely a very young 50 and he's a really old 65 you know it, it just became more and more but they, at that point so much time served I think and, and so much affection they just they were together until my mom died unexpectedly Whoa. um well not unexpectedly but we didn't we expected her to die second she uh, came down with ovarian cancer, oh, which is, no. as we know, as today, largely undetectable. And and even if she had been all about our, you know, our bodies, ourselves, and self-aware, you know, they weren't really looking for it. She just thought if she had a swollen abdomen because too many late night bowls of Java chip. And, you know, she was in her 70s. She wasn't getting looked at by her lady doctor um, wow, at that point. Wow. And so by the time they caught it, it was it was terminal, which is... I think at that point you start to make a decision about what kind of death you want. And and to be fair, time has made the pain less acute because, you know, there's something where you think when someone gets a diagnosis, it's terminal. I mean, we're all terminal. You just have to decide how you want to live that out. And you happen to have the, the benefit or the curse of knowing exactly how much time. Um, my mom had a really good death. I think that was her plan was to, uh, I mean, go, you know, she Kubler-Ross, we all did pretty hard through the whatever stages there are. I'm sorry, she, oh, she Kubler-Ross, I was like, okay. She Kubler, I made up a word. It's funny, it's like you wonder, okay, I have all of this knowledge that I'm about to lose a parent, and and she lived two and a half years, and got to dance at my wedding, which arguably was, we moved up a little bit. But, but yeah, we so she was, she lived dinner. for two and a half years after diagnosis. Post-diagnosis, yeah. Okay. And well, and not sick. She did her rounds of chemo and shaved her head and, you know, what would probably be a really poignant moment in the movie about it to help her feel like she had some control. And she had gotten really sick from radiation at one point, which, and this happened while I was on my honeymoon, which made the chemo inadvisable and then it just got away from her. And she was, she was hilarious in that after they did the final operation and they were going to you know, they couldn't do anything. They just sewed her back up and said, we couldn't do anything. And from the hospital asked if she wanted where she wanted to do her rehab therapy. And she was like, what do I need to do rehab therapy? He said, well, you know, you just had surgery so you can go up and down the stairs and get your strength back. And she said to him, my good man, I only need to go up the stairs once. Mm. And that was it. 
that was, she was like, what am I, I'm good. What am I going to run the 5k? I don't need to be back. I don't want to be home. Mm. And so she went home on her own terms. And because all of us, you know, there's six of us and we all had to kind of take turns in what my siblings very darkly funny would call death watch 2000. <laughs> we all take turns having our moment with her. And at this point she was on, you know, she had accepted it. I think she was tired and illness has a way of breaking you down. It's only 72. Father was father, 86. Yeah, I was 86 going, what the hell just happened? Wow. He, well, he did not get Alzheimer's, but I think it unmoored him because he mm. was thought he was going to die first. And he did not believe even as she was dying that she was dying. Wow. And, um, he started to get a little demented, you know, just a little less. He lived two years after. Three. 2003, he lived to 2005. So yeah, he lived above two and a half years after, which was amazing. Although um, I was devastated, of course, but she, uh, and this could be the fentanyl talking, and if you ever are fortunate enough to understand and, and deal with hospice caregivers who are angels sent from God, I truly believe that, that they make their living helping people pass, and not just the people who are dying, but their families as well, to understand that there's Although it's unique and it's only ever happening to you at the time, it is, of course, we have to bury our parents. The reverse is unthinkable and tragic. Mm. But when your parents are dying, it's like that John Dunn poem about, you know, the world should stop because he's dead. Everybody's dead. How can you go pick up your dry cleaning and get your teeth cleaned and wait at that red light? My mom died. But these hospice workers kind of really help you understand that there's a natural progression when someone is dying of a disease and how their body will shut down one thing at a time and what they can hear and what they can't hear. And But when I had come back from my stint at her side, I, I had been the first one to come. So I was last time. And at this point she was on, they give you so much fentanyl, you know, a patch of opiate bloating. She was pretty stoned. Right, but I do remember right. somewhat selfishly wanting to just have a moment with her to, to tell her it was okay to go and grab her hand and, and tell her I loved her. And, and she, I mean, you know, parents can give you a gift on their deathbed or they can scar you for the rest of their lives. So you're always terrified with what's the last, what's she going to say to me if, if she does wake up and what if it's not, you know, what if it's a rosebud or something like that and I'm haunted for the rest of my life. But my mom is always very funny and, and right. her Catherine Hepburn accent, she grabs my hand and looks at me and she says, Elvis has left the building. <gasps> <laughs> and that was the gift. That was an amazing gift from my mom because I knew that A, she was feeling great, um, and B, that she was ready. Wow. Was ready. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that good? That's really okay, yeah. good. So that was good. So I thank you, mom, for that. You know what? This is a great place for us to stop, actually. That is a beautiful as if I am, should be surprised that you were going to write beautiful think, chapters for I've me in the middle of my show. I've never told anybody that story. Oh, really? Is that yeah. true? I mean, my siblings and maybe cocktail party conversation, but, you know, famous last words topic comes up. That's beautiful, but just, you know. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Back for more after the break. Hey there, if you're one of the fans listening to the show right now on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you took a second to just scroll to the bottom, hit five stars on the ratings, wrote a one to two sentence review. It really helps the show find new listeners and it means a lot to me because I love getting your feedback. Thanks. 
All right, everyone, we're back with Louise. And what were you thinking? What were you just about well, to say? I was, I was trying to think, getting back to thematically, what we're supposed to be talking about. Because, you know, what was my relationship with God at that time as a benevolent figure uh, or, or even just an afterlife host? You know, what, what's going to happen to my mom? What, who do I pray to? Is there an afterlife? Is right. there, have we lived good lives? We've done all those things. People always say, oh, you never get religion as quickly as you do when you're about to T-bone it. Anchor truck, or mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's a phrase, but I can tell you it's definitely true. Mm-hmm. Um, and it should be a phrase. But you know, when you lose someone and you wonder if they're, we weren't raised with the thought that, oh, we'll see people in heaven. I don't even know what the, what the official, this is what a bad Jew I am. I don't even know what the official stance on the afterlife is. Yeah, actually, Jews, uh, from what I understand, there's no hell there's no, in yeah. Judaism. There's no hell, except maybe that. That four-hour Rosh Hashanah service. Yeah, ha, ha. other than that. <laughs> <laughs> but from just so you know, I feel like that's what I have gathered in my armchair analysis of yeah. all of this stuff. But continue yeah. on. No, so you were saying yeah, it makes sense. It's that you get one shot. You don't come back. You get one shot. You pass this way, but once, and any good you can do, you have to do it now while you're alive. So in that regard, I wasn't like, oh, she's in heaven now, or she's in a better place. But I do believe that there's energy. I think yes, of course, they live on through us and our memories of them and the way we conjure them in our dreams and in our parenting. But there were, <laughs> this is probably blasphemous, but there were signs. I got little signs after, you know, you do think you can't withstand something of like this as a child. When you think about your parents' mortality, it's unthinkable and terrifying. And so you don't really deal with it, but you know in some dreaded corner that you will absolutely disintegrate when that happens. Mm. And it's so funny, you know, you, apparently you don't that it's terrible, but that there's some part of you that there are things you have to do. And in those rituals in all religions, I think are so brilliant because they give us, they give us our to-do list and mm-hmm. they, and they give you structure when you feel untethered from the earth, they give you purpose and duty. You know, again, we were reformed, but there's, you know, you have to have the rabbi and you have to sit shiva and the, and the funeral has to be the next day practically most of the time. Um, but within a day or two to allow people to travel, I guess, is the modern day allowance there. But it was so helpful to me to have my faith then, not because it helped me understand why my mother died earlier than she should have. And it wasn't that. I, I know that stuff happens, but it, it gave me community and it gave me connection to something traditional that had been going on, you know, much like death, <laughs> probably twice as long. You know, like mm. the Jews, um, we've, been, we've been dying before death was even mm. a thing. But it helped. It helped a lot. But in a decidedly <laughs> not Yahweh fashion, we were cleaning it. My sister Amy and I were cleaning out the, the closet. When I say cleaning out, I mean fighting over who gets what. And um, huh. on the occasion of my birth, my father had gifted my mother what was indelicately called a push present which is, you know, the gift you give your wife for popping out a baby, I guess. That's funny. He's given her Push a double present. strand. My goodness. I know, so gross. A double strand of opera pearls with a beautiful jade clasp, which she had apologized to me on one of my earlier visits. And she, well, she was very busy bequeathing everything in the house to us. She had misplaced. She had hid it somewhere so well when she had people doing work on the house. And then she forgot where she put it. And she'd never been able to find it. She was so sorry. So the day after her funeral, my sister and I were cleaning out her closet. I turn around to say something to her and a pillow that had been on a high shelf somewhat unmoored by my rummagings fell and hit me on the back of the head which 
well, a great sight gag should not have been as painful <laughs> as it was. I was like, ow, what was that? And I turn around and I look at it's lumpy and they're inside the zippered pillowcase are my mother's pearls. Wow. For me. For me. Wow. Um, so that felt like that. Quite and then we literally to have, hitting yeah, you in yeah, the yeah, head with the back it. Of the head. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, okay. That's that one. She's are there beyond them? Then there are others. I, I'm, but, and I don't mean to be pressing for it. If there yeah. aren't that are that beautiful or that poetic, well, then that's, I mean that was the most physical manifestation. Every time I can't find a parking space, two things have to happen. If I'm looking for a parking space in an impossible parking situation, and the Doobie Brothers song "Black Water" comes on. Okay. I'm gonna find a parking space because that's <laughs> my mom's song. Amazing, and it never fails. I like to hear that funky. Oh, there it is. There's my song. <laughs> okay, now, 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 tell me honestly: Do you find yourself <laughs> yeah. when you're in when you're in now you're at the third, fourth, fifth minute of searching? For a parking space, yeah. driving around again somewhere. Do you just <laughs> put God that song me. on? Do you just say like, well, "Hey yeah, Siri, put on Blackwater"? No, I can't, it has to manifest naturally. But okay. you'd be amazed. What are the chances? I mean, that song came out forty years ago. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'll admit, I'll admit, I'm listening to a specific decade on. You know, okay, so that's fair. I'm wondering what the parameters are here. But the 70s radio, <laughs> chances are that's going to be in the rotation, but I do believe. That that's so beautiful, me. though. I yeah. Again, like, look, I don't need to explain to you that you could analyze your your story about the necklace and the, and the pillow uh, as someone yeah. who has no emotional connection to your story as being whatever, some, some amazing coincidence. But what it is is that I would, I'm sure I would see it I don't know if I would. I don't know what it would be like to have all of that. You can't, because I have both of my parents, I don't have access to what mm -hmm. that experience is for you. It's one of the reasons I'm interested to talk to people about it because oh, yeah. it is a mystery that is on the other side of a tragic experience. Mm -hmm. But I just can totally relate to what I imagine that feeling would be. I can imagine the, the resonance of that experience. Oh yeah. I just think it's really gorgeous. And so do you, Aww. do you, do you keep that? How do you use the <laughs> reverence that you have for that? Like, is it like, you do you use it as a, as a cudgel, like to your children? <laughs> I'll never let you find that necklace. I can tell you when I'm gone, I'll never drop it on your head. Um, when, when do you bring it yeah. out? When does that, when does that necklace make its way out into the world? Oh, into the world, 1960. I mean, no, no. I'm sorry for you. How often friend. do you wear it? Like, do you wear it oh, as a? You know, it's funny. I don't wear it. I I don't wear pearls. I mean, it's it's more, and it's not because is it because it's too gaudy. It's, now it's just not my style. I think I would carry them. I think the best way to say it, I use them like a rosary, mm. like a talisman. Mm. A talisman. They are a totem of my mother. Mm. I don't think, oh, great, take me to the opera so I can wear my pearls. That sentence never came out of my mouth, but it gives me as much pleasure as if I tattooed them. I keep my, <laughs> for those of you, I keep that and I have no other um, expensive jewelry or anything worth breaking into my house for. Um, so I'm just saying Right. That. And but by I the way, Louise lives in Mexico. <laughs> All right, there you go. <laughs> but um, they're actually, they were up until recently when, when, somebody you know i believe people are inherently good and but there are people who believe that 
within veneer of civility will be completely undone by current events and the purge is not too far away. Mm. Um, so somewhat straddling the line between living off the grid and growing my own vegetables and staying here completely naive, I just put everything that was valuable in the safety deposit box. So I, I don't have it with me, but I don't actually need to have it with me as long as the Doobie Brothers exist. Because mm. she's everyone. Okay. So I was talking to my friend, um, Michael Hitchcock. I finally got to catch up with him about he had just lost his father. His mother had died first as well. And he kind of made me aware about something that I'm going to ask you about. I, of course, having not had any experience with this, I wouldn't have been able to intuit this. But he said that when his father died, he was unexpectedly hit with the idea that now he was burying his mother again. Oh, interesting. Did you have an experience like that? Did your father move into a home, I guess, maybe at that point? Well, and so moved, maybe you... <laughs> no, no. He um, he moved in with my brother. I see. So Valley. you dealt he with the home closer. and all of the furniture and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So so you yeah. did... So when your mother died, that was a sort of closing of that, of that, that experience. No, I'll tell you what was really interesting. That he <laughs> the thing that happened when your parents died, you know, so much of your identity. I mean, you could go on to be other things, a father and an actor and, and, and a public speaker, and you have all of these different identities. But the one that's the longest, obviously, is that you're someone's child. Right. Like you are the child of those people. So once you kind of remove that part of your identity, yes, there's a morning. <laughs> I'll say it out loud. You have a real sense of the fact that you are next. Yeah. <laughs> Again, as I said, my family does have a thick sense of humor the ones who coined the Death Watch 2000 race and mm. all of that. I used to tease them when we were all somewhat younger and say, I'm going to die last. I'm going to die. All you guys are going to die before me. Nah, 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 nah. Mm -hmm. And then I think, oh, it's not necessarily a win that I get to bury all of you. Maybe I don't die first. Maybe I don't die last. Right, and your mother died you. first, and that can teach you I that you might you. not wait them yeah, out. It should also teach you don't wait yeah. for anything because yeah. you never know. You never know. But I think we've seen enough coffee cups with that phrase on it. Yeah, it's like no one's watching and you can die tomorrow or whatever that cup says. I'm wondering then, because one thing you referenced is that it kind of timed out that your mother was able to experience your wedding, right? Is oh, that she, what you said? she was. She got to dance at my wedding. She did not experience her grandchildren, at least not from my loins. My siblings wanted yes, but not mine. And mine are the best. Did you, were you, ha, 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 I love, I, I just want to, now I just want to hang out with you and your siblings and be a fly on the wall. Um, I love the the, the competitive the ribbing smart. here. It's obvious. Everybody knows. Get yeah. the dig in wherever you can. She knows somewhere. Somewhere she knows. <laughs> so did that spur you on with your mother dying? Did you feel, and, know, and knowing that maybe or maybe your father's death two years later, did did that yeah. kind of light a fire under you to start this family that you started at a at, at a later age? You didn't have your first child until you were like 38, right? Something like that? Right, yes. My uterus was on fire when I was 35, but I never felt compelled that, that biological clock answered. I met someone who inspired me to do this crazy selfless thing called parenting. Right. That was natural. We did, you know, we had been together for three years when we got married. So that didn't feel like we were rushing it, but we certainly, my mom died two months after that. There was no hurry there. I didn't want my kids to know their grandfather, but he was already sundowning a little bit by then. I mean, he wasn't, you know, we, we moved him in with my brother when after letting him, leaving him to his own devices, the nurse's aide that we had had 
to come visit with him found him like boiling orange juice or something. And I was oh, like, okay, wow. that's it. You're leaving news and you're coming to California. Right, um, right. But no, I, you know, listen, I'm not going to argue with the science that says any pregnancy over a 40 is lovingly referred to as a geriatric pregnancy. Well, now they're thir- um, over 35. Over 35 I is know, a geriatric right? pe- pregnancy. So, oh, really? Yeah. We had a geriatric. They keep moving the bar. They're oh, yeah. I slow pregnancy. Um, but yeah, I had all shocker. my kids 40 and older pretty much without science or anything. I was lucky. My husband, I'm sure, would ascribe it to his incredible virility. <laughs> but no, I didn't. It's funny because in death, people are are perfect, aren't they? I mean, at least in conjuring them. And while I'm sure that their real life experience would clearly match that, which I've been filling their heads with and stories about how much their grandmother would have loved them, you know, better that it be perfect. And, you know, I have a feeling mm. my mother-in-law, my mother would not get along. Ultimately ultimately. And that it's nice not having to, I don't know, referee that who's going to spend more time with the grandchildren thing. Mm. Um, I mean, my parents, it wasn't, you know, the Pleistocene, but there, there weren't that many ways to record oneself when they were growing up. I mean, when, even when I was growing up. So they really only have some super eight movies without sound of their honeymoon in Jamaica in 1962. Right, right. And some old, old black and white photos and some color photos in the 70s, but not a lot for them. So most of it goes through the stories I would tell about them. And they do have a one living grandparent on their dad's side who's amazing and hilarious and did know my mom and does tell the kids about her. So there's that. All right, so let me dive into this. It's just hitting me how consequential this like six year span of your life is right. You get married, you lose both Mm -hmm. your parents and then you start having children, right? All within like like three kids in four years. Yeah. I mean, I remember that experience as (laughs) one of your clients, like what Louise is fucking pregnant again. Like, whoa. I have the gestation period of a rhinoceros. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just amazing because you, that's what happens when these decisions get made, right? Things, your family explodes, your life, changes and reorganizes, but you had so many monumental events in such a truncated period of time. And then you're still at the very prime of your professional career, of of this arc of your professional career, correct? I mean, you're just kind of, you're just kind of on, you're all taking off. So what, tell me a story a little bit about what it's like to kind of light your life on fire there and what happens over the next maybe 15, 20 years is where we're going to go. And then I want to be, I want this to move towards why you're making the decision you are today and what has inspired you to make the decision you are of this last month to totally change well, this story. It's certainly, yeah. I mean, you certainly provided the natural segue. I mean, think about the intensity and the, well, the vibrancy of that time and how it was nonstop. And, and I thrived at that pace. And things move very quickly, but you really don't. You lose the ability to take stock or to get perspective on your whole life. I mean, everything is very immediate. And as you are probably well aware, this business is very insular and self-referential and you lose scale. You lose scope yes. in your life. And you, because of your brilliant and strong Midwestern values and upbringing and your family being so close and you're always very just centered and smart, but not everybody's like that, but you, so you get kind of caught up in it. And I'll have to say again, one of the other blessings of which I'm mindful 
during this time where we all are kind of at a ceasefire, whether we like it or not. We all have to just sit with ourselves and taking everything away. When, when you know, some people's reaction to the loss of their livelihood or their social standing or their client list or their income were fortunate enough to find that that defines them and their value. I was hoping it would then be replaced with this idea that that's not what's truly important when you think about where your family is and what your health is and under what conditions you work. Are you, you know, you used to be, oh, I'm working so hard to get provide for my family, but it was this exercise I did recently on one of my many walkabouts where you had to make two lists. And the first list had to represent the things that were the most important to you in your life, whether they were things or, or actions. And then in the second column, you had to keep a diary of the things and actions you spent the most time doing. And I had not a Venn diagram of connection there. It was not balanced at all. Mm. There wasn't a lot of, you know, my children and kindness were the two most important things to me. They, let me put it this way. They were not at the top of how I spent my time. Right, right. You know, they were a wish. But there was so little joyful alignment of what was important to me and what I was doing that I really wanted to kind of get away from some of the noise. And, you know, I know a lot of people do pilgrimages or silent retreats. I and three girlfriends signed up for a ridiculous boondoggle where we rode tiny, tiny motorbikes across the top of Africa <laughs> for, <laughs> for, for two weeks called the monkey run. It was hilarious. But basically it forces you to, these bikes break down and you get lost and you're super uncomfortable and push yourself and, and no one, all of the fears I had about being a woman in Africa or being a Jew in Africa or being alone in the desert. People, I said this before, I believe people are basically decent and kind and given the opportunity to do the right thing, they will, which for an agent is <laughs> it's pretty much the death knell of, of your business. But um, right, it's true. I mean, at least it was true for me on this trip. You know, and, and I'm sure some of it had to do with the fact that we looked completely ridiculous and therefore benign. <laughs> but that, you know, people would stop their cars to help us get up the hill, invite wow. us into their homes for dinner, you know, WhatsApp us for months and months afterwards just to make sure we're still okay and are we ever going to come back. And, and I was like, wow, it is a big world out there. Not one person asked me who I represented or if I, where I was on the star meter or if the client X was pay or play or. And then nothing, no one gave a hoot about what I did or who I was on that food chain. And listen, we could do an update in six months and I'll be calling you from, you know, management to management or whatever. But at the moment, I thought this is such a perfect opportunity. This while we're all being quiet mm. and we're all just can be silent for a little bit and kind of figure out when. When we go back, are we going to go back the way we were without any kind of change from what feels almost like an event of biblical proportion? Right. The fact that we come off the ark, are we going to be imbued with something bigger, better than what we were before? I didn't see this coming. I didn't see this coming, so I'm not a witch. I didn't make it happen, but it feels crazy to squander it. And, and, if I was zooming into the office and my contract was up at the end of the year and UTA has been benevolent and generous in making sure that my contract is fulfilled so that I think I can say no more without a lawsuit, but they've been great. So it's a double gift 
of time and, and support. I don't want to squander it by going back to the way I was even before I go back. I want to take this time and say, how do I craft a life? How do I continue to craft a life with meaning and purpose where my columns maybe align a little more joyfully? Oh man, that's very good. It's a great, it's our last, it's our last cliffhanger. We get one more segment with Louise. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll be right back for that one. By the way, God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. right, everybody, we're back with Louise, our final segment. One thing I wanted to talk to her about, she's been referencing the weight of mortality, obviously talking about the the mortality she came face to face with regarding her parents' death, but also this time period making her kind of feel that end as you are living with something like COVID-19 or going through other experiences. The first time I was really beset with this was at my child's birth. It was the first time I realized, oh, my life is for someone else. And one thing I really wanted to ask you about, Louise, was can you talk about any specific things that might that might be percolating for you now as you have taken this time, you're taking this extended time to reflect, you're at this point in your life now where your kids are up on their feet, they're not out of the house, but they're getting up on their feet and you're seeing this this time with clarity. Are you seeing parts of yourself, the childhood you, the spirituality you, did get from your family or got from other places around you (laughs) or had just innately? Are some of these things coming to you now with a newer sense of awareness? There is a, (laughs) there's a moment that I recall from my childhood, probably the best example of joy (laughs) that I have ever experienced or ever will experience when, and this is hard for, I think I was in first grade or kindergarten. I was pretty young. When I was broaching the subject of reincarnation, my mom, who, or death even, with my mom. And there was a period in every kid's life where you get obsessed with your mortality and you can't believe you're going to be dead, but that chair is still going to be here. And isn't that unfair? And blah, blah, blah. Hmm. My mom kind of turned it around for me in a way that felt, <laughs> it felt like God to me, where she said, well, what happens after you die? It's what she said, well, what was it like before you were here? What did it feel like before you were here? Huh. I said, well, I don't know. I didn't feel anything. And she goes, I bet it's a lot like that. She goes, but now wrap your head around this. You're here. <laughs> your consciousness, your soul got put into this body that before was nothing. There was nothing. And now you exist. And I think I really got it because my memory was like, I was jumping up and down on her four poster bed. Just my crazy luck that those two cells connected and it's my consciousness went into this body and I'm, oh my God, before there was nothing. And then now I exist. Amazing. Amazing. I win. I win. That was for me. So happy. Just, I can't even believe I'm how lucky am I to have this consciousness, to have this body, to be born in this time where there's television for three channels. Oh my God. You have to get up to change them, but oh my God, I'm here. And it just kind of, again, and you're never mindful of it again. 
maybe, maybe, like I said, the T-boning, the diesel truck or whatever, you get a little God. But to just be like, I can't even believe I guess that's so crazy. Wow. And to have that fill you, I think is as close to godliness as I've ever gotten. What what a beautiful thing too to have that euphoria from the oh, wisdom of your joy. mother. Mother's yeah. with your mother's wisdom. My mother, another another pearl, if you will. Yes, yes. Uh, but trying, but again, you know, I don't think you ever. Like I think there's too many harsh realities, mortgage and bills, and of course death, that make you less joyful about it. But again, like I said, it's once you kind of realize it's not you know, an awesome responsibility to make every second of my life count, and then it's all going to be slipped away. But to just like I said, like just be purposeful. You're here. It's such a great gift. Don't squander it. Be authentic and present in what you're doing. Listen, I was so lucky to work in a field where, listen, if I were a cardiovascular surgeon, I could have done that forever in any part of the world. But because of what I do, and only I'd say about 300, 400 people in the world do it successfully, and most of them in a six-block radius in Beverly Hills. How lucky was that? But when you're no longer... Hmm, when you're just kind of doing it by rote, but it's no longer what you're good at or what you started out with or what you're enjoying or your life has shifted, you know, again, to be able to have the latitude to start making these choices in this economy, really mindful of that blessing. But don't squander it. Don't squander it. You do something else. I want to jump on the bed again and be happy. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's a lovely story and a lovely image. You sitting there with your mother, mm. standing or jumping there with your mother. I, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> something that just came to me was when, and I know this doesn't mean that you stopped working, but when did yeah. you get the first inclination like, oh. When was the bloom off the rose? <laughs> yes. When was, when was the first, when you knew that your time, when was your darkest period oh, with this? Oh God, you know me. I don't have a dark period. I, I, I don't really have a dark period. I think it was an actual moment of real strength and I was like oh hey I don't love this anymore yeah kind of okay. thing but it has been I listen I'm good at that the parts that I'm good at I'm great at honestly I I, I, I know I know that about you you should own that, that and the goodwill that I that I've earned and the business is changing it's not you don't have you remember even management which is a relatively nascent field and kind of my favorite thing that I did I was kind of a management where I had smaller lists but I really spent a lot of time doing things that I think weren't as, my revenues were great and all my clients were great. But for me, God is both in the macro and the details, but I take a lot of care in a business that moves, that prides itself on moving fast and that it takes a lot of money to keep the lights on. I think I'm more of a craftsman in that way than I am a producer in that way. I just, I like, I like perfection. I like artistry and it's a, it's a business. And it's about branding and revenue and TikTok and all of those things. And I'm not a Luddite. It's just, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do it that way. I'm a bit of a dinosaur. When I came back from Africa, there's like three weeks without your phone. I mean, mm. I could have my phone, but it's a brick. Like I couldn't use it. Right, right, right. <laughs> African Wi-Fi would never get past the security on my phone. So I could never actually use email. And there was... There was an okay in that knee-jerk response when someone asks you something you don't know the answer to. You just have to be okay with not knowing the answer to it, which was I thought being able to look it up. I was like, okay, I guess I don't know. And it was okay. 
And I, I think there was just a minute where you come back and you're so dissociated from, <laughs> if, I, if this show had video, I would give you the feed of this. But one time, one of my, my travelers and I had arrived in a small town at the base of the Atlas Mountains as the sun was setting and it was hot pink and it was deserted and there was a high wail of a wind going through this beautiful valley and at five o'clock was a call to prayer and very much like a shofar to me <laughs> it sounded a little lot like there's a lot of common uh, judeo-christian things in in the muslim religion as well but it was just beautiful and every and it went through some kind of loudspeaker at some mosque bell i, I couldn't see but it, it was everywhere and it was the most beautiful lonely plaintive wail and we all just kind of stood there with our little teeny motorcycles straddled those motorcycles with our rolly bags and our in our hand with our jaws open just agape at the at the beauty of it and yeah okay that would be my my grown-up jumping on the bed moment i was like god it is such a big world out there mm, and i'm only loving in this little teeny part of it and i and i I, I think I want to see where else I can go. Well, what is that? Where Where do you want to go? And doesn't, this, is not a, this doesn't have to be, this is not a professional. What are you going to do? This is not a, a question about professional, about the professional streak. It's about where do you want, I mean, it could be as simple as the things you've mentioned, my kids, the love of this, I want to travel more. No, no, no. I mean, I have, listen, I got a, I got a nasty Jones called, you know, mortgage and private school and college. And I have responsibilities to the people I love to not uh, start composting and living off the grid and all of that. No, I, I have to get a real job. Yeah. <laughs> but I, for me, it, again, not to get all, I, I'm not worried and, and perhaps I should be, but I think the journey is the destination here. I'm so excited to find out. I, I want to continue to harness, like I said, the goodwill and experience and relationships and skill sets that I've honed over these 30 years in the business and not to profiteer, but I think, you know, well, here, let me put it this way. George, I think it was George Bernard Shaw, and we can Google it later and fix it if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. George Bernard Shaw once said, I don't know what World War Three will be fought with, but mm. World War Four, sticks and stones. And I'm not saying we're at war, but I do think we've reached a little bit of critical mass, at least in the, in the arena of business of representation. Um, you know, agencies have become entertainment companies and they represent entertainment IPs and individuals and brands, and that's important because you want to have a full-service capability for your client. And so out of that was born managers, but now managers are actually producing, which is great. It you know, makes logical sense, but it's become another kind of diminishment of the advocacy part of it. And then, of course, I've said now producers are starting to manage, and it feels like a Dr. Seuss book that hasn't been written yet. It's like, well, what are the star-bellied snitches going to do that? Mm. Um, it just feels like it's just become so far away from its core of what it was supposed to be. And, and whether or not now there's a the advocate for that you act as the ombudsman between the streamer and the cast, where there's someone who understands how to build rapport and trust, as well as marketing and strategies and ways to develop affinities with audiences as well as protect the rights of artists. I have all kinds of knowledge in many fields, just trying to figure out which one would be the most vibrant, 
in which to harness it. I have no doubt in my mind, of course, that you'll be successful at what you put your mind to. That's not to where we're going to end the show. I have five minutes <laughs> left with you. And so well, I have, I'm not worried about that. I'll bring you back uh, when you get your next job and we can talk about <laughs> what it is that you're doing. My next question is, there's been a, a sense of your affection for the rituals of these mm. religions right now. I'm sensing a sort mm -hmm. of affection. Oh, it's an attraction for sure. Yeah. And it's so my question is, do you see yourself practicing something now? Mm. In a way, I think we all have our rituals that we do. Some are more inscribed in books. So, you know, the Bibles and the Qurans as worshipful. I think I find the things that binds people together really compelling. People who otherwise would have nothing, no Venn diagrams in common. Whereas I could be, I could be in the middle of like a Moroccan desert and be like, yeah, you know, that call to prayer sounds a lot like the Jewish shofar. Mm. I, I might be, it might be a switch, but I think it's a call to connect, which is what I was responding to. But something that goes back way before agencies and producers and managers way before beds could be jumped on. It's what connects us to the earth, to who we are, to our consciousness. And rituals of tradition and behavior give us, give us a roadmap, I think. It's not a blueprint, but a roadmap. Most important. How are you starting to actively live or impart these realizations to your children who you are now doubling, tripling your time with them. It sounds like you're reinvesting 10 times over in your children in a way that you haven't had the opportunity to do so at the level you've wanted to do for maybe a decade or something. Hmm. Well, maybe not in terms of the time spent with them, but being a, it's they who teach me in that regard. You know, I do believe so much of the personality die is cast when they're born and all we can do is civilize them. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Don't, mm. don't poop in the street. Be a good person. <laughs> um, but I think mainly. Damn it! I got to teach my. Is. I forgot to yeah, teach my kid about the don't poop in the street thing. Right. Son that's, of a bitch. that's a big lesson. <laughs> but I think every day we're teaching them by how we behave. Right. Yeah, that we, yes. like I said before, the reason why I didn't really have a lot. I didn't feel. Listen, no kid is like. Can we please go to service? Please, can I wear something itchy while someone talks in a language I don't understand? <laughs> and God, I'm hungry. No one wants that. But they want to belong. They want to, it's where they have their community and that's what their parents always did. But if your parents don't do that, how do you bring spirituality to your kid's life? How do you develop their superego, their sense of right and wrong? How do you make good people? You be a good person. Mm -hmm. Do your best. You live out loud with that. You correct gently when you feel like perhaps they've misunderstood a tenant of how it was important to be human. You pay attention to what they're doing online and you know but at some point it's like all you you have to be the example at this point they are who they are and you can only inspire them to follow you i, I don't I, I think their i think their, their spiritual journey never ends um and i can watch them but i can certainly lead by example yeah that's beautiful okay hmm. so i got one more question for you okay what makes you despair and what gives you hope? Mm, my rose and my thorn, basically. Mm -hmm. Kind of a conversational gambit at dinner. Yeah. 
Um, I think we're all kind of living with it in a lot of ways. So I'm interested to know right yeah. now. It feels like it feels like um, a rich. Oh, there's so many things. You know, I think what makes me despair. I guess I could answer it both on a personal and a worldwide level. It's kind of the same thing in a way. I despair how disconnected we've all become. I despair the technology that makes us have relationships with our, our devices above. You know, I made this joke on Instagram. I screenshot a conversation I had with a girlfriend of mine who asked, the, you know, by now tedious question, how are you holding up? Mm. <laughs> right, this is the check-in. I replied, well, I just spent $125 on takeout sushi for my brood who are now in their rooms with the door shut on their devices. So my life hasn't really changed all that much. Wow, right. Um, which you joke, but it's like, this is how they live. And I'm sure it's the same way my grandparents decried plastic toys or Elvis or whatever that were, this is how everybody's living. Because it's the same way that enables us to connect. It gives me hope that some of this kind of global village is being used for good. I see the connection, just how people deal with this crisis. You know, I the world occurs to people in very different ways. And I think the world will oblige you depending on how you treat it. Um, but I know people who think the world is a deceitful, treacherous place and act accordingly and their lives go accordingly. A lot of people were like, oh, you need to get out of LA because there's going to be rioting and murder and death and viciousness and barbarism and and barbarism rather. And, and, and I was like, I don't, I really don't think so. To the contrary, it's been really great <laughs> to see. So that gives me hope. I despair that we won't take advantage of it. I, I do. It gives me hope that, that we're being, that this is a beautiful test of our humanity and, and our resolve and our resilience and a reset button. And I, I despair that so many other people see it as an opportunity to despair monger i don't like that i mean i think of course with the loss of life and in our just being pc here of course it's terrible it's terrible but it's an opportunity for us to be better as human beings not expect the worst from each other louise spinner you came in <laughs> i was so excited about this i'm really looking forward to this conversation did not disappoint so lovely oh, getting you. to talk to you thank louise you. Oh. And I know we'll talk more, and we've talked a lot over yeah. the years. But like I said from the very beginning, I was really excited to just get to have an opportunity to talk with you at where you were at in this stage. It's really beautiful. You're very thoughtful. You've always been very articulate and very um, very intelligent, you. and you you speak. It, it comes out very clearly. So thank uh, you. Thank, thank you for this time. You. Oh, you're welcome. You're so welcome. Apart from Alexa, you're the only person I've spoken to all week. <laughs> <laughs> really great for me too. <laughs> well, you and I will talk a little bit more after um, I say goodbye to the listeners, but okay. thank you again for being well, here, Louise. Pleasure. And hey, thank you all for listening. Now, having a reason to drive anywhere would be amazing. <sighs> I know I, I talk to people who just get in their cars so that they can have like a pod away from their family togetherness or just a change of scenery or just get fresh air or just play their own little version of Omega Man and drive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know a lot of people are doing the PCH route. Um, some people are going to 
previously, you know, crowded places and we're marking on how much nature is back. I mean, it hasn't been a whole season, honestly. It's been, but it's probably been, you know, eight weeks without traffic and the smog levels are almost gone and you can see snow-capped mountains from the beach and a little bit of it feels kind of overdue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Controversial, but this was what I found is most widely accepted and inspiring thing to say is like, it makes me mindful of my many blessings. Yes. I feel like right? that's, that like COVID-19 or right on the heels of COVID-19 <laughs> is going around. 